Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Acts. Sermon text this morning will be Acts chapter 8, verses 4 through 25. Acts 8, 4 through 25. And before we read that, let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your love for us and for your word and that you have not left us alone or on our own even to figure out your word, but you give us your Holy Spirit that we would be able to hear and receive and believe and We pray, Father, that you would pour out your Spirit on us now, that you would uh, guide me as I speak, that I would speak words that are true and right and good, Uh, guide all of us as we listen, that you would give us discernment uh, to know what is good and cling to what is good, but to, uh, to be able to let go of anything that is not true or not faithful to you and your gospel. Uh, Father, we we pray that you would uh, bless this time, uh, use it by your Spirit to draw us closer to your Son and conform us more fully to his image. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. (coughs) Acts chapter 8, beginning with verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ... They were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus." Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. 
Well, you may not have noticed, but religion is not always a good thing. Uh, religion has been used and abused for every evil purpose under the sun, right? Religion is sometimes used to justify hatred and murder on the one hand, and sometimes used to justify immorality and licentiousness on the other. Conservatives might use religion for their ends, and liberals will use religion for their ends. In fact, co-opting religion has kind of uh, co-opting religion for your own pet cause is kind of the American way, right? I mean, if you really want people to rally to your side, uh, just claim that God is in it somehow. This may or may not make for good politics, but it definitely makes for bad religion. And uh, this morning, we're going to look at some bad religion, uh, the religion of one Simon the Sorcerer, or sometimes he's called Simon Magus. The story of Simon, uh, of course, is in the context of the conversion of the Samaritans. And so uh, if you notice the outline on your back of the bulletin, we're first going to look at the Samaritans' story, and uh, then we'll look at Simon's bad religion. And we'll see four things about it. We'll see that uh, bad religion misunderstands faith, that bad religion misunderstands power, that bad religion misunderstands glory, and bad religion misunderstands grace. First, we'll look at the Samaritan story. Uh, Acts is the story of Jesus' church. It's the story of Jesus laying the foundation of his church. It's the story of Jesus sending his spirit to work through his apostles to lay the foundation of his church. And Jesus promised his apostles during his earthly ministry that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church, which is to say that the church will storm the gates of hell and win. And Acts is the story of the church beginning to storm the gates of hell and win. Acts uh, begins, you may remember, with Jesus commissioning his apostles to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And uh, then he sends his spirit to empower them to that end. And from the start, their witness is powerful. Uh, it, it's powerful in that it's accompanied by powerful signs of the spirit's presence in miracles and healings. But it's also powerful in that many hear the word and believe it. This eventually, however, causes some trouble, and uh, the Jewish leaders begin to be jealous of this new movement. They're threatened by some of its teachings, and persecution begins. At first, that persecution was pretty small. Uh, the, the arresting of the apostles, the, the beating of the apostles, the threatening of the apostles, and then just letting them go. But eventually, Stephen is arrested and uh, stoned to death. And that event actually sparks uh, widespread, though most likely short-lived, uh, persecution of the church. And many of those in the Jerusalem church scatter. Uh, Luke actually uses the word all in chapter 8, verse 1, but uh, he doesn't actually mean every single believer, but the vast majority. And we know that, well, for one, because he tells us that the apostles themselves stayed in Jerusalem. So it wasn't all the disciples, at least it excluded those twelve. Uh, but second, in the very next chapter, in chapter 9, uh, we're told that there's still a group of disciples living in Jerusalem, which includes, but doesn't seem to be limited to, uh, the apostles and Barnabas. And so much of the church is scattered. And verse 4 tells us that those who were scattered went about preaching the word. 
And uh, the, the Greek there is, is the word from which we get the word evangelize. Uh, those who were scattered went about evangelizing, uh, spreading the message of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And, and one commentator uh, already asks us kind of a worthwhile question at this point. He, he says, do you see your setbacks and opportun as opportunities to tell the good news of Christ in new venues? You know, these, these persecuted Christians, as they, as they leave Jerusalem, they could have been discouraged and despondent and depressed, but instead they, they go out with purpose, right, to evangelize as they go. They, they use their troubles as a platform for sharing Jesus. Philip, in particular, you may remember Philip, he was one of the, the Hellenists back in chapter 6 that was appointed as a deacon. Philip goes down to Samaria and he proclaims Jesus as the Christ. And the, the people believed and were baptized, and uh, both men and women. And the apostles back in Jerusalem, they hear about this, that the Samaritans had received the word, and they send Peter and John. Now, Peter and John's role here is not really stated, but it seems to be that they're confirming the conversion of the Samaritans, that this is real, that God's word has really uh, gone to the Samaritans and that they have believed. And the reason that would be necessary is because this is a bit of a big deal. Uh, the, the Samaritans and the Jews did not get along, which is a little bit of an understatement, right? The Samaritans were seen as, as the blasphemous stepbrother, right? They, they weren't quite Gentiles, uh, but they were not faithful Jews either. They were half-Jews and syncretists, right? They combined the Jewish religion, the true religion, with the pagan idolatry of the world around them. And so here we see the gospel already beginning to break down boundaries. This long-held racial and religious tension between Jew and Samaritan is being overcome. It's interesting that uh, that though they were baptized, that the Samaritans were baptized by Philip, uh, the Samaritans did not receive the Spirit until the apostles came and prayed for them and laid their hands on them. Uh, we probably shouldn't read too much into this. For, for one, there's actually no set pattern in Acts for uh, the reception of the Spirit as it relates to baptism, uh, which is to say, you know, some people receive the Spirit before baptism and then are baptized. Some people receive the Spirit upon baptism. Some people receive the Spirit, like the Samaritans, after baptism. And so there's, there's, there's no set order throughout the book of Acts. Uh, there, there's a kind of connection between the two, right? Both are signs of entrance into Jesus' kingdom, into the church, but there's no necessary pattern for how the two relate. You can't say, as uh, some might say, that if you have been baptized, then you definitely have the Spirit. You can't say that in the book of Acts. Uh, you, you also can't say that, that you should only baptize those people who have received the Spirit. You can't know that necessarily uh, and see that in the book of Acts, though it's clear they relate. Luke is actually silent on how they relate. Um, if there's something to note here, though, it's this, that when the gospel breaks new ground uh, here among the Samaritans, the apostles have to be a part of that, uh, since a major part of Acts is to show the, this march of the gospel from, from Jew to Samaritan to Gentile, right, from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth, uh, and since it's the apostles in particular whom Jesus commissioned to make that march, uh, the Samaritans only fully enter into the church when the apostles are there, present. And yet the main point of the story is actually not about the apostles laying on their hands uh, on, on the Samaritans, 
but about the misunderstanding of that by one man named Simon. Now we're going to look at Simon's misunderstanding in detail, but before we do that, I want to note just two things that we could say already uh, from the story of the Samaritans. And that is first, that th this new mission field means a new challenge. Uh, the, the challenge in Jerusalem was the religious elite, uh, those who were in positions of power who wanted to hold on to those positions, so they held on to their understanding of uh, Moses, their misunderstanding of Moses. They held on to a thousand years of tradition that were built on top of that misunderstanding of Moses. But now in Samaria, there's a, a new mission field, but a new challenge. Uh, the, the challenge is not the traditional religion of the Jews, but the challenge is the syncretistic religion of the Samaritans. And uh, here's the point that I think uh, we should take away here is that wherever you go with the gospel, there will be challenges. Uh, but those challenges may be different from place to place, right? You, you have to convince a, a secular atheist that God is real. You have to convince a religious Hindu that, Hindu that God is one. Right? Those are very different conversations. The gospel is confronted on every side, and so we, we need to know the gospel and be ready to defend it or explain it in various ways to various pe people. Um, it's not that the gospel changes, right? The gospel stays the same, but the way that we explain it or even what we emphasize from uh, moment to moment, person to person, will change. The second thing to note before we look in detail at Simon is that even the best preachers can be misunderstood. Uh, maybe this point is, is, is uh, an encouragement to me, um, but it is also for you as well as you share Jesus with people. You and I will both be misunderstood at times. No matter how carefully we craft our words, no matter how intentional we are about what we say, sometimes we're going to be misunderstood. Surely Philip and the apostles understood the gospel. Surely Philip and the apostles clearly communicated the gospel. But somehow Simon didn't get it. Or at least, we must say, he still had a lot to learn Right, about the gospel and about God and about grace. Which may just mean that there's another preliminary point, which is that just because someone has responded to the gospel doesn't mean they have it all together. We all still have a lot to learn. <clears throat> and yet, Simon's understanding of the Christian religion was particularly poisonous. And so that uh, brings us to Simon's bad religion. Again, we're going to look at four things about this, that, that bad religion misunderstands faith, misunderstands power, misunderstands glory, and misunderstands grace. Uh, first, bad religion misunderstands faith. Uh, what attracts people to Christianity? I know that's a difficult question to answer in part because there, there are lots of things, right? Different things for different people. Uh, Christianity offers answers to the, the, the big questions of life. Uh, it offers freedom from guilt and sin, forgiveness, reconciliation to the Father, uh, the hope of the resurrection. Sometimes the message of Christianity is presented as if all your worldly problems will go away, which is a lie, but sometimes people present it that way, right? Simon, though, was attracted to something else. He was attracted to power. Simon, we are told, was a magician. Uh, uh, we're not told what that means. What does it mean that Simon practiced magic? 
Should we believe in magic? Is, is magic real? Uh, I, I think actually what we're meant to understand is this, that Simon claimed to have power to manipulate spiritual forces. He claimed divine power, according to verses 9 and 10. Somehow, whether through trickery or demonic activity, we're not told, Simon was able to do spectacular things, which amazed the people. And all the people of Samaria had paid attention to Simon, according to verse 11, because he amazed them with his magic. But there were limits to Simon's power. Uh, If you notice in verse 7, Philip was casting out evil spirits and healing the paralyzed and the lame. Apparently, Simon, for all his show of power, did little good for his Samaritan village. Simon amazed the people, but Philip brings them joy. And here's the point. When when Philip comes and he does these miraculous things, verse 13 tells us that Simon was amazed. Simon the sorcerer, right, who who had amazed the crowds for years with his tricks, suddenly realizes that something greater than parlor tricks is here. But it's here where where Simon's misunderstanding of faith comes in. You know, what is it that captures Simon's attention? It's miracles. Have you ever met a Christian uh, who is always talking about miracles? How God miraculously did this and miraculously did that. But when you ask them about Jesus' atoning work, you get a blank stare. Faith in miracles is not actually saving faith. You can believe in miracles without believing in Jesus. If miracles amaze you, but the cross embarrasses you, or even just confuses you, you're probably not a Christian. Jesus said of some who asked him for a miracle, an evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign. There are some, right, that all they want is a miracle. All they want is a sign. All they want is that rush of adrenaline, that little spark of wow. Earlier Christian generations called this uh, miraculous faith, uh, not saving faith. It it is faith in miracles, is what they meant. Uh, Faith in miracles, not faith in Jesus. It's a kind of uh, faith counterfeit. For many, this counterfeit faith is really, it's just superstition. Uh, You put your trust in fantastic stories or amazing coincidences, but you never talk about repentance and faith. You never talk about guilt and grace. This is bad religion, right? It's religion that focuses on the superstitious, the the miraculous, that, that reads into every coincidence. Now, it's bad religion not because uh, miracles aren't real. The Christian religion stands or falls on the miracles of the incarnation and the resurrection. I I believe in miracles. I even believe that God can and does, as he sees fit, do miraculous things today. That's not the issue. And it's true that some of us actually have the opposite problem of Simon, right? Uh, that, That we don't believe in the power of the Spirit at all. But the New Testament tells us that if we are sick, we should pray for healing. And if we're hungry, we should pray for daily bread. And of course, then we're to go to the doctor and look for a job and let God decide whether he wants to work through, apart from, or against means. That's up to him. But, but here's the point, right? That faith in miracles that is not also grounded in or supremely faith in Christ, 
Faith that, that doesn't see our sin or is not focused on Jesus' work on the cross as Savior is not saving faith. Bad religion misunderstands faith as superstition rather than trust in Jesus' work for the forgiveness of sins. So bad religion, on the one hand, misunderstands faith. It also misunderstands power. If Simon was amazed at Philip's healings, uh, he was blown away by the apostles. Verse 18 tells us that when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money right there on the spot. Uh, you can kind of just see him watching the apostles lay on their hands, praying for the Spirit. The Spirit comes and, and he thinks, whoa, right? I need to get me some of that, right? How much? You know, 50 bucks, 75 bucks, 100? What, what, do I, what do I need to give you to get that power? Now, now money is a kind of power, isn't it? Uh, it's a kind of power. And Simon thinks that he can use the power of money to purchase the power of the Spirit. Simon is not looking to come under the power of the Spirit. He's looking to own the power of the Spirit. Simon wants to maintain control. He thinks he has leverage here. He thinks that he can buy the Spirit's power and then control the Spirit's power. And here's the thing. Part of becoming a Christian is actually recognizing that, that I have no leverage with God. I can't bargain with him about spiritual matters. Not only that, I'm, I'm not in control in this relationship. Becoming a Christian is not about adding a little spiritual boost to my well-ordered life. It's about giving up the reins of my life, giving myself over to Jesus. Too often we think that we are still in control or that we can become Christians and stay in control as if becoming a Christian is just adding a little Jesus power to make my life run more smoothly. And of course, we think we get that, that, that little bit of Jesus power by bargaining with God. God, if I, if I read my Bible every day, you help me you know, find a girlfriend. Or God, if I pray regularly, you get me through these classes. God, if I go to church or memorize the catechism or serve at a soup kitchen, right, then you uh, get me a wife and a kids and a fulfilling career and whatever it else uh, we dream about. See, the way we conceive of this power relationship between us and God is one of bargaining with Him, which means essentially we're, we're equals. I have something God wants, my prayers, my tithes, my church attendance, and God has something I want, normally some very this-worldly blessing. But that's a complete misunderstanding of power, right? God, God is not there to be bargained with. God is not a power to be controlled for our ends. Think about Jesus who did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. And that though he is God, he took on the form of a servant. He came under the authority of creatures he made, his parents, uh, the Jewish council, the Roman government. He allowed himself to be put to death by the hands of sinful men. Jesus came into this world and throughout his life, he, he gave up power. He said in the garden when he was being arrested, you may remember, that he could call a legion of angels to come and fight for him. But he also said, not my will, but yours be done. On the cross, Jesus didn't say, God, if you get me out of this, I'll never cheat on my taxes again. No, he said, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus, very God of very God, became a man, and as a perfect man, he, he gave up control to his Father. He trusted his Father's plan. Now, the result 
of Jesus' death and giving himself up to his father's plan was resurrection. Right? The, the, the result of giving up control to his father was being given all authority in heaven and on earth. See, we think if you want control, if you want power, if you want authority, you, you grab it while you can. Jesus gave it up and received it all. Bad religion misunderstands power. And so you know, the question for us is, are, are you like Simon? Do you see power as a thing to be grabbed and held onto and used? And God is just a, a, another pawn, another power to be manipulated for your own ends. Or are you learning to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Jesus? Are you learning to give up your life in order to truly find it? Bad religion misunderstands faith, it misunderstands power, and third, it misunderstands glory. Think about what is motivating Simon here. Why is he asking to purchase the Spirit? Well, look at Simon's history. Verse 9 tells us that Simon used to practice magic and amaze the people, saying that he himself was somebody great. That, that's what Simon wanted. He wanted to be somebody great. See, for a while in Samaria, he, he, he made it work. He practiced magic. He amazed the people. Verse 10 tells us they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. The people were under Simon's sway for a long time, verse 11 tells us. But then Philip comes along. There was something in Philip's healings and miracles that was more real than Simon's shows of power. And the people believed Philip. And the people were baptized by Philip. And what this means is, essentially, Simon is old news. And even Simon himself is amazed by what Philip did. And then Simon asks to purchase the gift of the Spirit. Why does Simon want to, to, to be able to give the gift of the Spirit? Well, Simon was once seen as the, the power of God in Samaria. Well, who is the power of God in the book of Acts? It's the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Simon wants that power. Why does he want that power? To keep doing what he's always done. Because power is glory, right? He wants the power to astound the people again. He wants the power to hold them spellbound. He wants the power to amaze. He wants all eyes on him. Simon thinks the way to get glory is, is through displays of power. You see how maybe these points build on one another, right? The, the, the bad religion misunderstands faith as faith in, in the God of superstitious power. It misunderstands God's power as something to be controlled. And it misunderstands glory as coming from displays of power. So I look to this superstitious power of God. I try to control it in any way possible so that I can gain glory for myself. That's what's going on with Simon. Now for God, his glory does come, at least often, through displays of power, right? That's true for the creator, but not actually for the creature. For us, God's power, Paul tells us in the New Testament, is displayed through our weakness, which means glory is found in weakness as well. Again, think, think of the cross. Jesus, before time began, had all glory in heaven with the Father. He tells us as much in John 17. But he took on the form of a servant. And in his humanity, he had no glory. 
As far as society was concerned, he was a poor kid with a sexually immoral mom. He was constantly rejected by his hometown, by his family, by the religious leaders. He was eventually arrested. His friends abandoned him. There's no glory in that. He's accused, he's tried, he's convicted, and then he goes to the cross and his clothes are torn from him. And he dies naked and nailed to a tree as a public spectacle. There's no glory in that. But of course, that's not the end. God the Father raises Jesus from the dead. He gives him a glorious resurrection body. He raises him up into heaven. He seats him on the throne at the Father's right hand, giving him all authority in heaven and on earth, and a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. See, in the world, if you want glory, like Simon, you need a show of power, money, talent, strength, wit, beauty, whatever. You need to be able to show off. But with God and for Jesus, glory actually comes through serving, through laying aside glory, laying aside power, and serving those around you. Bad religion misunderstands glory when people seek to make a name for themselves through a show of religion. Whether that is, you know, look at how pious I am, or look at how many Bible verses I've memorized, or look at how many people I brought to Jesus, or how many homeless uh, people I've served, right? Whatever it is, when we do religious deeds to be seen by men, which is what Jesus uh, accuses the, the Pharisees of, we are misunderstanding glory. When we capitalize on religion to make a name for ourselves with those around us through displays of power, we serve ourselves rather than God. We see God as a servant of us rather than ourselves as a servant of God. I'm using religion for my own ends. Of course, the irony is it's when we give up the glories of this world and serve in weakness rather than putting on a show and serve God rather than self that we get the true glory that comes from God rather than from men. That we hear God's words, well done, good and faithful servant. So are you pursuing glory? Uh, from whom are you pursuing glory? How are you pursuing glory? Bad religion misunderstands glory by seeing it as coming from men through displays of power and strength, rather than coming from God as we serve him in weakness. So bad religion misunderstands faith and power and glory, and all of this comes down to, number four, the fact that bad religion misunderstands grace. You know, Peter's response to Simon's bid for the Spirit was pretty strong. In fact, uh, J.B. Phillips translates verse 20's words, may your silver perish with you, as to hell with you and your money, which gets at the heart of what Peter is saying. Simon thought he could purchase the gift of God, the gift of God. The Spirit was purchased by Christ on the cross. We were told that at the beginning of the book of Acts. He is given as a result of Jesus' work. Simon thinks he can buy God's gift that Christ has already purchased and gives away for free. Simon doesn't get grace. Peter says, may your silver perish. May it be destroyed like in hell with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Peter calls it like he sees it. Simon is on the verge of damnation. He doesn't understand grace. He has no part in Christian ministry. His heart is not right, Peter says. 
And when Peter says in verse 23 that Simon is in the, in the gall of bitterness, he's actually echoing Deuteronomy, where we find this warning against turning away from the Lord and serving other gods. Well, what God was Simon serving? Well, he was serving himself. He was serving his, his own pride. He was serving his own ego. Moses warns in Deuteronomy 29:18, Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. Well, the root of pride and self-glory held Simon in, his, in its grip, and it bore the bitter fruit of thinking he could somehow control or manipulate God to make a name for himself. Now, when we find ourselves in, in serious sin, as Simon did, which clearly, according to Peter, this was serious sin, right? We have one of two tendencies. We either presume on God's grace or we despair of it. We either take God's grace for granted, oh, he'll forgive me, he's God, that's what he does. Or we assume that our sin is unforgivable. Right, look at what I've done. There's no way that God could forgive this. But Peter tells us that there's actually, uh, he tells us the one cure for both presumption and despair, which is repentance. Verse 22 says this, Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. You know, you know when you fall into to sin, you need forgiveness, but you don't need to despair. There is something you can do, not to purchase forgiveness, that would be the wrong way of misunderstanding it, but to find it. Not to twist God's arm, but to open your hands to receive His grace. You can repent. Right? You can see your sin for what it is. You can, you can own it for what it is. You can confess it to God. You can turn from it to Him. It's interesting that Peter says, if possible. Uh, I, I, I think that's to break Simon of his self-confidence, right? Simon thought he could purchase the gift of God. He thought he was still in control. Peter wants to take away all presumption. You cannot twist God's arm, Simon. Repent and hope that God will forgive you. But Peter doesn't want Simon to despair, right? It, it, repent, he says, and pray that God will forgive you. Bad religion misunderstands faith and power and glory and grace, either presuming upon grace or despairing of ever receiving it. But you know, John, who was there in this moment with Peter, uh, like Peter here, he says in 1 John 1, 9, which we read earlier, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Is your religion more superstition than trusting in Jesus? Is it an attempt to control God rather than to serve him? Is it an attempt to get glory from men rather than to give glory to God? In your religion, do you presume upon grace or do you despair of it? If so, that, that's bad religion. Right? God calls us to repent of sin, to rest in Jesus and out of that rest to serve God for his glory. And the truth is, as you do that, you will find glory from God. You will hear the Father's well done, good and faithful servant, and you will find joy in his smile. Let's pray. Our Father, I pray that you would cleanse us of every misunderstanding, uh, every misunderstanding of what it means to be a Christian, every misunderstanding of what it means to follow you. 
that you would help us to turn from our sin, to rest in our Savior, and to seek your glory with everything that we do. We pray that as we do that, Father, that we would know your smile, know your delight in us as your children. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.